look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popovich. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, Faisal. How about you? Not bad, not bad. we got a good show today. Uh, we do. We're going to get an update on the current economic situation in Canada from the Director of Canadian Strategies at Russell Investments. We're also going to chat a little bit about private equity. Ooh. Yeah, that's been in the uh, in the news recently. Uh, it's been a growing area of interest for a lot of investors. Let's chat a little bit about that. What it means, what it can, uh, where it should be in your portfolio, and the kinds of uh, of funds, stra- um, sorry, uh, pensions, and so on and so forth that are using these kinds of yeah, strategies. Yeah, it's, it's right? something that's not being utilized in most average uh, investors' portfolios. It's it's been more of a institutional or a pension style like you mentioned so i'm really looking forward to that piece yeah okay um we've got a seminar coming up and we're going to try to make sense of what's uh, a very very noisy environment very confusing for a lot of people let's maybe just give our listeners a heads up because it's on a monday this time not a tuesday that's right so we're going to be discussing the economic backdrop and it's not looking promising when you think about all the trade issues that are going around nafta the g7 summit this weekend and so forth and and all the other issues that come up Profiting and protecting in this type of market and making sure you have cash flow so you have the income for life in your retirement. Uh, We're going to discuss that on Monday, June 18th, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. Now you need to reserve your seats. So give us a call at 966-8400. That's 966-8400 or go to our website to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. Okay. What a week. Well, they're always interesting weeks these days. I have to tell you, um, it's an academic journey. (laughs) Every single week, trying to make sense of what's going on here. Um, let's just kind of, we often do this sort of the debrief uh, and talk a little bit about what clients are talking about, right? What are people, what's on their minds, right? The water cooler talk. Yeah, yeah. And I think we get lots of positive comments about that because it often is resonating with other people. Is there anything that was sort of burning a hole in your in your pocket, in your well, back pocket? Well, a trend I, I can saw? tell you what was happening in some of the offices, offices in, in downtown Calgary. They were talking about how we... Uh, we bombed and destroyed the White House in 1812. That was very interesting. Well, <laughs> President Trump seemed to be quite concerned about that, making us a strategic threat. I'm not sure he realized that it was really the British that did that, but that's okay. Yeah, we, We're we, just splitting yeah, hairs on that deal. Yeah, yeah, well, again, no one expects him to know the history of, <laughs> of what our country was going through. But that being said, it, it's very interesting, the, the ploy, the opportunities, the, the strategy that they're using about about security and they're making tariffs as the reason that's where the loophole is um trudeau had a very interesting response um not too many people are are getting confidence out of trudeau that they're going to be able to negotiate uh with uh with uh with trump administration and then the whole g7 meeting it's going to be very interesting to see well and you know what i find very interesting particularly with canada's is we weren't really the target um of a lot of the uh American president's tweets for a long time. Um, and I, I think in the U.S. administration, they felt that uh, Canada was probably going to be um, perhaps a little easier to negotiate with uh, as they would side with the U.S. against Mexico on you know some of these issues of wages and so on and so forth. And it hasn't turned out that way. And, and I think it's interesting to watch the nature of the tweets coming and sort of the president's 
attacks, I'll call them, on uh, on Prime Minister and on Canada. And I think it's frustration, right? We know that when President Trump doesn't get his way or he gets criticized, he, he gets frustrated, and that's the result of it. And I, and I think we're seeing that right now, right? I think the expectation was going to be Canada was going to be um, a little easier to negotiate with and just hasn't been. Well, yeah, and I think that's where um, the concerns start to come up. When you look at what's happening here in Canada, especially here in Alberta, pipeline issues Mm -hmm. we're not having massive growth in this province Um, we then see the nafta issues we're seeing all this stuff come up and it's it's becoming more of a concern for the average person not only in their portfolio but just the economic backdrop of where they live and i think it's very difficult for individuals to see past all this uh, on how a, a market like canada an economy like canada can can continue i'm i'm concerned I'm not um, I'm not pessimistic where I think we're we're done, but I think we're I'm concerned we don't have an aggressive administration provincially or federally that comes out and says, how are we going to compete and not just compete with what we have? But how are we going to bring in the new? Because there is um, people leaving this country to go down south for for businesses, for jobs. Remember, in the U.S., they have more jobs available than there are unemployed. That's right. Right. So there is opportunity. This was the same problem we had here in Alberta not too long ago. Let's call it 10, 12, 14 years ago, probably, where where um, where we had more jobs than people and people were coming in from provinces here to to take over those jobs. That's going to happen. That's happening in the United States, but it's a different skill level. It's not your your average person. It's it's the the skill level that they're looking for is higher. and, And and that drains out from our universities. It drains out for people who are experts here where they can get good income jobs and, and, a, and a lifestyle and a lower tax rate there, it's a concern. And I think that hasn't been addressed. We haven't had any member from either provincial or federal say, this is how Canada is going to compete. This is how we're going to stay on top. And that actually pulls through to the markets. That, that actually sure. says we have concerns if it's not going to grow. And just look at what the major banks and insurance companies are doing. They're trying to diversify their their portfolio by not focusing only on Canada, mm-hmm. by going globally, because mm-hmm. even they know that it's not Canada's not the be all end all at this point in time, and and no no member from government is stepping up to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you know, on, week on week here, the perhaps the rhetoric is changing. I'm not sure that the the story has necessarily changed at this point. There is certainly growing uncertainty. Markets are looking past that right now, Faisal. I think equity markets in particular, you're seeing a lot of volatility uh, still in the bond markets as it's trading around. But this, uh, the equity markets, I think, still are looking at this as a uh, trade dispute, as a negotiating tactic versus an all-out trade war at this particular point. Um, we do have to keep our eye on this, right? This is, I would say, of our economic dashboard, the area that we are most concerned about. One of them, yeah, for sure. Yeah, would be in inflation, and inflation could be triggered by trade wars and you know, so on and so forth. So this is an important issue, no question. Uh, but would you would you say any different? Would, uh, like markets right now are saying we're not going to react yet. We don't think this has become a global trade issue. What I find war. interesting about the market right now is normally the market will trade on rumor and sell on news. Yeah. Right now, we're not trading on rumor. Right. We're waiting for the news. And I think that's the difference. And mm. if, if the news becomes more negative than it is today, mm-hmm. if the, and, and trade war is a big word, I think if we start to see this tit for tat happening even more and it's escalating, yeah. yeah, you're going to surprise the market. Yeah. And I think that's a concern. And so when people say to me, 
um, you know, we shouldn't worry about this because the stock market's still moving ahead. That's what the stock market discounts at this point in time. And, and more importantly, it's not even the stock market. The bond market is discounting that. Yep. And the currency markets are discounting that. And so um, I, when you look at it, I look at the currency markets. They're a little bit ahead of the plan. They're mm -hmm. saying there's still some more risk mm -hmm. than what the bond market is saying. And the bond market saying there's a little bit more risk than what the stock market's saying. And that's why we're, we're you know, people are averagely focusing on on the stock market and not realize that there's other indicators out there that says the risk is increasing. It's not recession. Right. It's not full out trade war, but the risk is increasing. Yeah. Yeah. And that can be uh, due to the uncertainty. Okay. So uh, we'll be talking about, I think this story for uh, a little bit yet, that's not going to get um, resolved immediately. Anything else? I mean, uh, I was thinking about some of the trends and the conversations I was having, um, the, the concern, the fear that it raises that uncertainty around, you know, the cash flow, the consistency, the volatility that we're seeing. So let me talk about volatility for a minute because that, that has certainly come up in conversations. Last year, there were only uh, four days where we had you know more than a 1% move. There's been more than 15. On the U.S. market we're speaking of. Yeah, the U.S. Yeah. market, more than 15 yeah. this year, and we're not even halfway through the year. So volatility's back. Is that bad? That's a great thing. Right, most people it's look a, at Ooh. Yeah, it scares people because they all, all they want is their stocks to go up. And so I get that. But you need volatility because if everything is going up, is it really that good? Is, is the, the global economy, those companies that good? The expectations continually rise. And, and I'll pick on one company, and I'm not saying they're a good or a bad company, but Dollarama on Thursday got hammered in the market because they didn't meet expectations. Right. And so when that happens you're going to get nailed. And so because they were doing so well for so, so such a Since period, the recession, it's been nothing but up for those up, guys. Correct. Last year was and you can no name, different. And you can name many stocks yeah. that have done this. It's that when they disappoint, they're going to get hammered. And if you're expecting even faster and higher growth, companies can't do that forever. So there is a point. Gravity does settle in. And this is part of the problem that we're seeing with the market is that as long as it's going up, keep feeding it. There's going to be a time when it turns around, and we have to be careful. Well, and, and here's the other here's the other issue: is uh, it's been a passive investment environment for a while, where money's been flowing into exchange traded yeah. funds. Yep. And and here's what people need to know about that: if you buy an exchange, you put a dollar into the SPY, the exchange traded fund um, for the U.S. S&P 500. Right? Yep. Um, a, a weighted amount goes into every single one of those stocks. So valuations on all of those 500 stocks have been pushed higher as more money has flown in because they automatically get purchased. you got to buy. That's not on fundamentals, though, yeah. right? So there is going to come a point uh, where the fundamentals just really don't support. Not all of those companies um, should be invested in at the same time. Correct. Right? At the same weight. And and so there's going to be there's going to be a day of reckoning when that uh, when that comes. So you've got to be careful on understanding the money flows and whatnot as well. So I find that that lack of volatility that we've had and that intra that that connection to ETFs very very interesting. Okay, we could go on forever, but we need to wrap up this segment. We've got a seminar coming up. Yep, it's on Monday, June 18th, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. You need to reserve your seats. So give us a call 966-8400. That's 966-8400, or go to our website at morethanmoneyradio.com. We hinted how the Canadian economy is doing. Uh, we're going to talk in more depth about that. Stick around for that. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. You know, Faisal, it's time for um, a quarterly catch-up and a review, see where we are kind of halfway through the year, where, you know, what did we expect for the setup of the year, um, what's happened, and where do we expect to go for the second half? Yeah, and I think we need to look at, you know, when we're looking at the setup, what was the back backdrop of last year? Yeah. You know, we had 
you know, some good numbers out of the markets, especially in the U.S., um, what, what, economically speaking, because at the end of the day, economics will drive stock valuations in the future. Mm-hmm. So we've got to take a look at what happened last year, what's happening uh, up to year to date, and then yep. what's the expectation for us the year? It is a bit confusing in the sense we've had lots of questions about people saying, hey, earnings season in the U.S. has been spectacular at the beginning of the year, but equity markets haven't necessarily reflected that. Okay. So there's lots to try to make sense of. Shea Shatria is here uh, joining us for the next couple of segments. He's the Director of Canadian Strategies at Russell Investments. Shea, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, guys, for having me. All right. So why don't we start, um, give us give us that backdrop that Faisal had referred to. Tell us a bit about uh, 2017, how, we, how that year sort of played itself out, and then we'll put it in context for going forward. Yeah, so 2017 w- was interesting, and obviously 2018 is quite a bit different from what we experienced in 2017. In 2017 overall, it was almost like a t- Teflon year, if you will, because there was there were many headline risks. If you think about you know trade uncertainty, geopolitical uh, risk, political risks south of the border, etc. So we did have to deal with several uncertainties um, throughout 2017, but. For various reasons, you know, nothing really stuck in terms of the equity markets. There was this resiliency that we experienced throughout the 2017. And as a result of that resiliency, what we didn't see, what there was lack of, was volatility overall for 2017. Uh, and as a result of that, we obviously 2017 was a great year for financial markets, a great year for equity markets, obviously the U.S. equities in particular. Uh, and then we fast forward to this year, and we see things have changed, right? It's really not as resilient as it was back in 20 uh, back in 2017 and i think what's changed is that it's not what's changed it's that i would say things have become a little bit more normal mm-hmm. than they were back in 2017 and what i mean by normal i think the best way to actually illustrate w- what normal feels like is to illustrate how abnormal 2017 was so if i can throw out just a couple of stats so in 2017 overall if you think about um, now, look, thinking about just about the U.S. equity market, so using the S and P 500 as as a proxy for U.S. equities, and you think about um, how many days where was the return worse than uh, minus one percent? Right. Throughout the year, only four days did we see a return of less than one minus one percent. Wow. So negative returns were a bit of an anomaly, right? And no negative monthly returns whatsoever. Fast forward to this year, and we've already had 15 such episodes up, up through the end of May. Right. So four times the number of negative, you know, less than 1% days that we had in all of 2017, we've already experienced in 2018. Do you know when you go back in history, what's a normal amount of volatility in the U.S. markets, number of times that, that an investor should expect a 1% or greater drop in a day, in a month, and just kind of can keep a reference point, you know? Yeah, and... and and even, a, I think a good way to think about it is just on a monthly basis. So 2017, again, there was not one negative month uh, whatsoever. That's never happened. So at a minimum, right, in terms of what's normal, at a minimum, you would expect at least one month of negative return. Yeah. We haven't seen that in decades. Uh, we saw that obviously last year in the U.S. equity market. So that's how abnormal it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do see obviously things starting to change yeah. this year as we have seen a little bit more volatility um, in the financial markets. Well, in peak to trough, if my research was correct, I think the worst peak to trough move on the S&P last year was negative 2.3%. Exactly. Right? I mean, that's yeah. that's not even a speed bump. No. Right? No. In historical terms. So we got lulled into this false sense of security, right? Investors, things can only go higher. That's right. right? That's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that was the norm last year. Um, but it's not, it's not 
this year. So tell us, uh, so we, we get that 2017 was a bit of a surprise and anomaly in that. What? So what's the setup to 2018? So you're coming into 2018 now, we're going to take you back six months. What, what were you looking for? What, uh, what, was the, what did the year hold for you at the beginning of the year? Yeah, so when, as we were, what we were thinking as the year had started, that we were, we had been, the way we've been characterizing it is that the market has gone into what we call a late cycle phase. Um, and as a result of that, and, and we put this in our publications, our expectation was that volatility will indeed rise over the course of the year. Um, did we expect it to, you know, <laughs> accelerate <laughs> exactly in, in February? Uh, no, admittedly, no, uh, we did not. But we did expect volatility to rise because our base expectation was that as the year progresses, the markets would start to discriminate economic data a little bit more than they were over 2017. What had happened and what I think changed the market psyche for 2017, why it, was, why it ended up being a little bit more resilient than we had anticipated was because of the stimulus that came through, or the announcement of the stimulus, which is now what we're uh, um, feeling uh, in, in, over the first half of 2018. But because of the tax reform in the U.S., because of the fiscal stimulus that was announced, that pushed back the anticipated or the expectation of the next recession. Right. So therefore, that you know safety blanket, if you will, was rolled out a little bit further, and it allowed the market to continue. So our expectation was, well, you know what, as the years would, pro- uh, would progress over 2018, as we get into the second half of 2018, that volatility will start to, ro- to, to increase yet again as the markets start to discriminate the data, economic data coming out and start to digest, well, when is uh, the likelihood for the next recession? And that will, in and of itself, cause a little bit more volatility in the financial markets. Okay, so, so that we, was sort of the, the setup in terms yeah. of what we were expecting yeah. to happen as we came into the year. And then we got a bit of a surprise, as markets like to do to us. Exactly. didn't quite play out that way because no. volatility decided to rear its ugly head early in the year. Exactly. Right? So, okay, so now we get to, to February, late February, and all of a sudden, wham, the volatility is back. Um, just talk to us a little bit about the, the economic setup. So we know volatility is back. Mm-hmm. Um, does that mean that this are we late cycle stage? Is this uh, indicative of, of more to come? What 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 would you tell investors now? Yeah, I do think that this is a reflection now of late cycle phase. So the f- late cycle phase. I think the markets are now starting to think about well, when is that next um, recessionary type of environment happening? And from an economic backdrop perspective, um, we do believe that over the next. You know, let's, let's think about recession probabilities, right? So at the end of the day, obviously investors will be concerned about, well, when is that next big drawdown occurring, right? When is that going to happen? Now, unfortunately, no one has uh, a crystal ball to give you that precise answer. I wish we did, but we don't. But what we think about in terms of drawdown, well, when, when do you expect a bear market, a 20% type of uh, decline in the equity markets? Well, that's normally associated with um, recession mm-hmm. risks, heightening. Our base case scenario is that over the next 12 months, 12 to 18 months, recession risks should still be fairly contained. Um, but if you have a time horizon of, let's say, you know, call it one to three years, then they're heightened indeed. So, and that's why we're starting to see a little bit more volatility because where in 2017, the market was a little bit more resilient to uh, sort of headline risks and he- headline shock. 2018, as we enter, as we progress through 2018 into 2019, and the market starts thinking about, well, could the back half of 2019, early 2020, be a recession? You know, higher probability of a recession. Well, then, 
it's that discrimination, right, is what's causing the volatility now. So we do think that the equity, from an equity market perspective, there will be more volatility, but sort of upward skew mm-hmm. to returns overall, but with heightened volatility, as, we, as we've seen, um, but still with that upward bias. But as we move into 2019, especially in the second half of 2019, and, and the market starts to, uh, tarts, starts to uh, discount the next recession is when we can see a little bit more, you know, negative volatility in the financial markets. You know, Dave, I think we should <clears throat> go to break. Yeah. Come back. I, w- I want to ask about the question of what are the th- key things yep. that you look at to kind of give you that forecast of a recession or the markets are going to turn? What are some of those key indicators? And then what's our outlook for the rest of the year? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Now, before we do take a break here, Faisal, we, we've got to talk about our upcoming seminar because we're going to try to take this, you know, this macro picture and put it into a strategy that helps uh, individual families bulletproof their retirement. Yeah, and this is where we bring in the five-pillar investment strategy approach, looking at the entire economic uh, viewpoint, profit and protecting in this market and making sure that your income continually flows to you. And we'll be discussing that on Monday, June 18th, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. Now you need to reserve your seats. So give us a call at 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or go on our website to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. All right. If you're interested in finding out what those indicators are of the next recession, stick around because we're going to have Shay address that particular question here on 770 CHQR and More That Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Uh, we're joined, um, continue to be joined by Shay Shatria, who's the Director of Canadian Strategies at Russell Investments. Uh, Shay, just before we uh, uh, finished up the last segment, we were talking about, you know, as we moved in, in this next one to three year period, um, the, you know, towards the back half of that, there's uh, increasingly increasing concern, I guess, that uh, we'll be facing the end of this cycle and our next recession. Maybe let's just talk a little bit about your economic dashboard. And so where where do you see the uh, the risks right now? Okay, so from a risk perspective, something that we are closely monitoring um, would be inflation, mm-hmm. right? So inflation overall, um, obviously price inflation, as well as wage inflation. Mm-hmm. So something that has been missing, if you think about um from the markets, from not from the markets, from from a macro, from an economic perspective, over the last several years, and the markets have been, you know, trying to find it, but it has not uh, reared its ugly head. Is inflation, and where I th- what we're seeing now in the data is that, although it's still not to the levels that we'd be overtly concerned, but inflation is ticking higher. You look at um, metrics such as. Uh, prices, producer prices, and what have you, input prices, those are starting to tick higher. So that tells us that there are these inflationary pressures that are creeping in. Um, the most recent employment data in the U.S., looking that was a gr- another good example mm-hmm. where the, obviously the, the, the headline numbers are great, um, above expectations, but even the wage numbers have started to accelerate. Now, they're not to the point where the markets will be, we had that wage scare earlier in February and then things kind of calmed down, but we're seeing, you know, influ- you know, wage pressures also start to reassert themselves. So inflation is something that we want to keep a laser focus on because if inflation pressures start to build to, um, a little bit stronger than what the markets are currently perceiving, then what that means is, well, the Federal Reserve, which, is been in, which has been hiking uh, interest rates, gets a little bit too concerned about falling behind the curve and therefore, 
you know, gets a little bit more aggressive mm-hmm. in their rate hiking cycle. So that's something that we want to keep a close eye on in terms of inflation and what the policy response would be. I think our key metrics right now, because the Federal Reserve at the end of the day, which controls the money supply, um, has been a key uh, supporter in, in a sense, right, with yields being, interest rates being as low as they are, um, policy being as, as accommodative as, as it has been, has been a key support function for the asset prices. So therefore, th- those are a couple of key watch points. One of the things that people look at or we've been hearing in the past is the indicator of a recession in the market mm-hmm. is when you have what's called an inverted yield curve. And for those who don't know, that's when your longer term yields, let's pick on 10-year U.S. government bonds, are higher than your two-year government bonds. And so they're your uh, uh, you're basically, sorry, lower. So you're basically going into a uh, a point where it's higher interest rates for the short term, lower interest rates down the road. Is that something that's on your radar screen? Um, how predictive is that? Uh, I've read lots of data now that people are focusing a lot on that with inflation, and, and that will be a good indicator to start rotating out of stocks going into other investments that maybe protect you, maybe even cash or fixed income and so forth. What are your thoughts about it? Yeah, Faisal, you bring up a really good point because that is actually, so there's a, several indicators that we would look at, uh, but the yield curve is indeed a key metric to keep an eye on because empirical evidence does support that it is a, it, it does tend to um, invert prior to recessions. Now, the lead that you get can vary anywhere. Mm-hmm. It could be anywhere from six to 12 months. So a yield curve inversion doesn't in and of itself means that a recession is, you know, the next month thereafter, but it does give you a bit of a lead time. So it is a key key metric that we look at. And currently, you know, the yield curve in the U.S. as well as in Canada, it's the 10 two year spread as, as, is, what you, is what we typically look at is right around 40 basis points. Right. So it has been, you know, contracting, but it's not to the point of inversion just yet. We yeah. do think that um, over the course of the next 12 months, we will start to get to that end and will be yet another indicator that things are, again, late cycle. So now, that's a key metric. Now, is that around. only a North American phenomenon or are we seeing that globally? Because we've been looking at our research and we see it's, it's attractive outside of North America. And for the rest of 2018, when we start seeing a flattening yield curve in Canada, in the United States, are we seeing the same issue happen in Europe? in most parts of Asia, where we should be concerned about that being a global recession versus just a contained recession in, in small parts or certain parts of the world. And that's a good, that's a good point. And what's interesting is the, the yield curve and the implications that it has on recessions, it's much stronger for North America, U.S. Uh, primarily and secondarily Canada, than it is outside of, uh, outside of North America. Mm. And to that end, when we look at the yield curves in other parts of the world, which is one of the reasons why we think, you know, it's nice to have a global approach even to your fixed income, is that, to your point, that there are, it's not the same situation outside of North America. So it is, um, it is more of a North American concern here and now, right, at, at the moment. Um, but yeah, when, when, we, when we start looking at, you know, regions outside of North America, it's actually not the same. And in fact, if you think about Europe as a great example, um, now, Europe, as we know, they have their own um, sort of idiosyncratic risk as it relates to the po- political situation there. Um, but that being said, uh, if you think about the European economic cycle, it's probably a year to two years behind mm-hmm. the U.S. economic cycle. The central bank, right, the ECB there, is probably a year to two years behind uh, where the Fed is. The Fed has obviously 
uh, tightening, you know, it's quantitative tightening now as well as hiking rates. The ECB is still in Q, quantitative easing mode, QE, as we say. Uh, and they're currently projected to end that program. The expectation is September, but with these heightened volatility or heightened uncertainty uh, with the Italian situation more mm-hmm. recently, uh, we could see them perhaps, you know, extending that to the end of the year. So we'll, we're looking for some clarity there from the ECB come, this, you know, in their next meeting over the next uh, couple months into the summertime. But in terms of rate hikes, that's probably not on the cards till mid, late 2019. I mean, that it still remains to be seen. So, so they're a little bit behind. We've got um, a couple minutes left. Mm-hmm. Um, how does this impact the emerging market world with the flattening yield curve in, in the U.S., the dollar doing what it's doing? Is emerging markets an opportunity given the economic backdrop? Because global growth is still there. Or is it more of a risk to be in those areas versus more industrialized, more Western, let's call them, uh, when it comes to Europe and, and North America? You know, that's, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because we didn't touch on it. But emerging markets, we, so from a structural perspective, we love the emerging market story. We think that the longer term growth potential out of EM is still there. Um, and if you look at over the last 10 years, since the bear market bottom, emerging markets in general have underperformed U.S. equities, right? Mm. It's only 2017 when we saw a significant catch-up. Now, because of some of the points that you mentioned, the interest rates rising, U.S. dollar being a little bit stronger, it's caused quite a bit of volatility on the emerging market side. And as a result of that, we've seen them underperform relative to the U.S. equities developed markets in general. We do think that emerging markets will probably be a little bit volatile as a result of these key trends as they uh, persist over the next uh uh, you know, several months or so. But longer term, we do believe that emerging markets is a place, um, is, a, is, an opportunity. is an opportunity that every investor should explore. Awesome. We've, got, we've got a minute or less, and you can't do uh, super justice on this, but I just want your opinion quickly on trade, tensions, and tariffs. Mm. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. So, it's a, you know what? As from a Canadian, purely Canadian perspective, it is a key re- concern. It's been one of the key concerns that we've, and, and many, you know, market strategists and economists have been citing. Um, we hope that cooler heads will prevail. We still think, you know, we, we look at what's going on with the trade tensions and we think about the cycle overall, the business cycle. At what point will it impact the business cycle? Mm. We still have to see how things progress. We don't want to be too quick to react just yet. I mean, there's a lot of tit for tat sort of, um, uh, you know, banter going back and forth. And if it persists, and if things get accentuated even more so than they are, then that impacts the business cycle. The, the, the implications for both the U.S. and Canada are a little bit more severe. And then our views uh, with regards to how the trade tensions and what it means for the U.S. business cycle as well as Canadian business cycle would change. For the time being, it's one of the key watch points. Obviously, from a Canadian perspective, it's more negative in the sense that it already is impacting um, business investment and, mm-hmm. and tensions there. So it remains a key watch point. We don't just we don't want to be too quick to react or overreact until we really see uh, how these discussions progress over the next several months. Appreciate that. Thank you. Um, we've been joined by Shay Shatria, Director of Canadian Strategies at Russell Investments. Faisal, we're going to have to uh, finish off another uh, section here. I thought those two pieces were good, helping people sort of put into perspective some of the key things that they need to 
stay focused on as investors as we move late into the cycle here. But we're going to try to make sense of all that in a strategy that not just gets you, th- you know, to the next cycle, but through it and allows you to live that life that you've envisioned in retirement, right, in perpetuity all the way. So let's uh, let's just remind everybody when that's coming up. Yeah, k- quick key points here. Heightened volatility, um, not secure about what's going to happen in the later years of 2019 and beyond. Are we going to go in a recession? That can impact someone's retirement. So sure. how do you transition to and live in retirement when you're going through those types of economic and potentially stock market uh, hits to your portfolio? We'll discuss that and our strategy behind all that to protect you and grow your portfolio on Monday, June 18th, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. Now you need to reserve your seats. So give us a call at 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or you can register online at morethanmoneyradio.com. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal. Um, you know, Faisal, often we sit with uh, parents and we talk a little bit about gifting in their lifetime. Yeah, and, I, and, and the, I think there's a sense of guilt or responsibility amongst parents that are gifting money to their children mm-hmm. because of the circumstance that they're in. Circumstance that they're in, and a lot, we hear a lot of conversation about, you know, housing, as an example, has become so Difficult. expensive, well, right? And, and take it one step further. We just had a good conversation about about um, the economy globally and the risks that are out there. Yeah. There is a group of people, and let's say under the age of 50, mm-hmm. um, let's even go under the age of 40 if you want to get more specific, and say the 18 to 40 years of age group have found it more challenging because of the Great Recession, because of the recovery, hasn't always hit them directly. Mm-hmm. Coming out of university, you don't get the, the best jobs right away. Um, those types of things have, have had problems, and so parents are feeling bad, guilty, want a sense of trying to help out. Right. Uh, and so what we're seeing is a trend, and it happens in our practice sure. with of our course. clients. They want to take some money out, and they want to uh, provide it for their children on a down payment. a down payment. That's right. Now, there was an article in the Globe and Mail that talked about how how parents are can financially suffocate a child uh, because of this gift of money or for the down payment or for a home or what have you. And I'll, I'll walk you through my thoughts behind this because this is this is an implication of the economy. When the economy is great, people are making lots of money, the down payment issue is not not there, right? Mm-hmm. Even, though, even though housing prices are higher. And yes, Toronto and Vancouver are known for their, you know, I believe overpriced homes. Yeah. Uh, and it's very difficult for an average person to get into a home there. But it happens here in Calgary, happens in Edmonton, Montreal, Ottawa. And, and we find that parents who are are looking to ha- encourage and help their children get into a home, they're getting into a home based upon one mathematical formula. First of all, the idea is to let's get you in a home because right. owning a home is a good thing. Right. Okay. That's that's the advice that parents give to their children. Number two, let's look at what the what your rent would be versus a mortgage payment. Now some are saying get the heck out of my house. I just want you to right. go live somewhere. Yeah. But but we look at rent versus mortgage payment. And this is this is preliminary. This is how they first look at it and they go, look, your rent is let's call it two thousand dollars. What if we got you a mortgage at two thousand dollars? Great, I'll give you the down payment. You can you can get on your on your own two feet and away you go. Mm-hmm. I think we miss out on a couple of issues. And this is where the financial suffocation comes into play. When you are a homeowner, the cost to you are more than just the mortgage payment. Yeah, it's more than just the rent. That's right. Right? It's more than just rent and utilities. Yep. It's more than just rent. Yep. Sorry, it's more than just mortgage, uh, utilities, and property tax because right. there is maintenance. Right. There is upkeep. There is there's ongoing stuff that you'll have to pay out of pocket. And what I find is that some parents end up with encouragement to own a home, end up suffocating these individuals to have them become house rich, 
cash poor. Right. That their every dollar of income or very little left over at the end of the month to pay for them their own lifestyle for savings for the future or whatever it may be, paying down debt, they're putting it towards their home and they don't have a choice. Because right. when you're a homeowner, you don't you don't do the things that you do to keep the home. You're gonna have even higher expenses. And so it's a maintenance issue, and that's a concern of mine that individuals are not forecasting what the overall is. And a lot of people are impatient. They want to get in right away because sure. that's what the lifestyle is. Sure. And, and we, all, you know, we all grew up believing that owning your own home is ultimately financial freedom. Right now, there's another issue, right? I mean, for the last little while, house prices only go higher, and, it can go, and they go higher in some cases in some of these markets at a staggering rate. Is that always the case? Which also sends the urgency to get in now. Right. Because if it's growing at 10, 20% like it has in Toronto, Vancouver, right. or during the boom here in sure, Alberta, absolutely. people were just jumping and throwing money in. Right. I remember I left, I left, I sold my home um, to go to, to move to, to BC when I was managing a team out there. This is back in 2004. What I sold for when I came back two years later, the house doubled in price. And nothing changed except for the economy got better for a short period of time, of course, um, but the price doubled. And my concern was how many people get forced into buying because of that, yep. right? The momentum, right? Get in now because it's going to get more expensive. And it's a concern of mine. I think we, we don't do our children a favor sometimes when we try to get them in on a, on a situation and, and then you kind of, it's called like a hamstring, right? You get yeah. a hamstring and you get pulled and you can't do much. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, it's, it's terrific. Parents want to help out. Uh, the intentions are good, but you have to think through it in terms of what you're saddling. Can the, can the kids do it? Yeah. Right. Most, can most they financial it? advisors or planners right. will say, how is it going to impact the, the person giving the money? Right. What they don't take a look into account is how is it going to impact the person receiving the money? Receiving it. That's right. And so when that happens, and if you do a proper family plan or strategy around this, does everybody benefit and does it help everybody net, net dollars? And this is only a financial conversation we're having. It is what it is, right? Then you go from there and you can make that decision. And I'm a math guy, so I just work on the numbers and I make my decision accordingly. Yeah. If it doesn't work for the math then you're making a decision beyond the financial piece. Then you have to understand that the bank of dad and mom might be open again when things get even more tough. Or it might need to be open, yeah, right? Yeah. Right. So both all parties have to consider that. We're not saying don't give to your children. We're not saying don't help them get a property. But get the proper advice. Do the due diligence That's on your right. own situation and also on your children's situation, knowing the economic backdrop, knowing where they are financially. That requires a lot of conversation between both parties mm -hmm. and away they go. Because parents will say, yeah, my kid makes good income. I'm going to help them with a the down payment and they can make their payments. That doesn't mean they're fiscally responsible. Yep. That just means they can make a mortgage payment. Right. <laughs> yeah. So we have to be careful about that. So let's let's broaden that a little bit because uh, lots of conversation uh, taking place around, we call this the legacy bucket, right? Yeah. And so, you know, when you're gifting, uh, whether it's in your lifetime or upon passing, um, that's, that's part of your legacy, right? That could be in terms of a home. Now, um, so let's back it up. Let's go back to mom and dad, yep. okay? Uh, gifting is something that people uh, need to think through very, very clearly. So we've given you one example here. But um, I'm going to tell you, uh, this, can, um, this has to be thought out very clearly, not just with respect to the home. I've seen situations where parents want to gift and help the kids because they've got a mortgage already and they want to help the kids pay down mortgage. But that money didn't get spent on the mortgage. It got spent on something else. 
And mom and dad are going, hey, 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 wait, that wait a second. That wasn't the purpose. That wasn't of the what gift. I thought you were going to do, right? So I want I want to let people know that when you gift, right, that's a one way transaction. That's yeah. going to the beneficiaries, whether it's kids or charities or whoever, yeah. that you choose. Yeah. Right? So Aside from the financial impact, doing the math, right? Because you're the math guy and and you you love that. I'm more on the behavioral finance side, right? I I love to watch the impact, the impact on the people gifting, the impact on the people receiving. That can often lead to unintended consequences, correct? Correct. So a, a, a plan... Right around what that gift looks like and expectations. And remember, Very when you're gifting, you have to, like you said, it's a one-way transaction. You cannot control right. the money once you've gifted it. And I'll give you another example because <laughs> this week I had I, I met with one of our clients and they gifted money to their child to pay down the mortgage, and they did. Yep, they did. Mm-hmm. But then the child sat down with the banker, and the banker said, "Let's do a line <laughs> of credit so you can go buy more stuff." And they did. And the parents like, "Well, that's not what I expected." <laughs> right. You cannot control once you gift it. Yeah. So understand that. Make sure you're comfortable with that. They can do whatever the they want to with their <laughs> with their money, and and that way there's no there's no there's no like you said unintended consequences. Yeah. And so uh, not to belabor this point, but when when we talk about that legacy bucket and that you know the legacy the gift that people want to leave and understand that's what it is right when you're when you're doing that it's a gift, and so think of it in terms of the gift and think through the different ways that that gift may be used, right? So we often, like I like the whiteboard a lot. You've seen my office, right? And you can kind of draw it out and you get a little flow chart as to how things may may work out, where it goes, and so on and so forth. That's a really valuable exercise for mom and dad to do, right, to understand that. And then depending on the family dynamic, get the kids involved so that, you know, they understand. Because the family dynamic in gifting is incredibly important, right? When you're gifting in your lifetime, there's also legal considerations to think about, right? So Correct. if you help one kid over another kid, you know, there that could the unintended consequence of that at the end of the day can yeah. be something very different than what you thought. Correct. And and there's yeah, like you said, it, it requires advice, it requires proper attention to yep. it. It requires not only um, financial information, yep. legal and tax potentially. Yep. Yep. And so sit down with your advisor if you don't have one, get one on this one type of stuff because when you're dealing with transitioning to or living retirement and taking care of your children uh th- th- there's it's a complex situation or it can be and that you need to make sure that you've you've got all angles covered legacy is one of the four buckets income growth health legacy that's the four buckets that's asset dedication that's what we're talking about and a structure to bulletproof your retirement and that's how you structure yourself to make sure your retirement and the lifestyle in your retirement never retires that's very important we're going to be discussing this on Monday, June 18th, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. Now you need to reserve your seats. So give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400 or register online at morethanmoneyradio.com. All right. We look forward to having that conversation with you. Uh, we've got to finish off another show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Just a quick reminder that you can access any of our past segments on morethanmoneyradio.com. Or please sign up and have them do, uh, delivered directly to you. And you can do that by searching for More Than Money CHQR on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in to another, another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian
Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.